Yeah. All right. Go on. I think you may have been right. That's that's the whole. That's it. That's all I got. I think you may have been right. I may have been dismissive, too dismissive of the notion of Markel Fultz returning and contributing in a positive way to the Sixers. What a what a remarkable week we've had. Was there anything better than than uh, you were on your way down to the game, right? When you found out, I was, I was, and I got simultaneous. I got text the text call combo that he was playing. It not gonna lie, that p- despite being in traffic on 476, that put a little pep in my step. I when I got off, I turned off podcast and I turned on music and uh, regaled the rest of the way down in excitement of Markel Fult. What hype song did you get yourself ready with? Uh, I go to my uh, Apple Music favorites mix, where each week it it creates a new custom playlist for you based on songs that you like a lot. So it's usually a mix of uh, like early aughts uh, pop rock, uh, occasional classic rock, and very modern pop slash Taylor Swift, with a little bit of Jimmy Buffett thrown in. Nothing like T Swift to get you hyped up for the return of the number one overall pick in the draft. Before, yeah, she wasn't on. She wasn't on that mix, but yeah, it was good. I was hyped. Before we uh, break down Markel Fultz's return to the court, I think it's uh, time for a little bit of love from a sponsor. Russ, did you know it? the average wedding costs $35,000? That's kooky. Did you know in Philly it costs over $40,000? Believable. Did, did you know there was a BuzzFeed writer? who's paid just $10,000 for her wedding in 1974, and she calculated that today it would cost $47,286. So what if there was a company that could help save millennial couples, or couples, I, I assume they are not, uh, they're agnostic to the age of their couples, but couples, 10 to 20% on their overall wedding costs. Uh, that's what I do and I will does for uh, millennials here in Philadelphia, uh, an innovative company founded by Ardmore Native and St. Joseph's graduate Richard Supley. It has powerful partnerships with companies such as Vera Wang, Southwest Airlines, Macy's Yacht Week, in case you're going on that real expensive honeymoon, Visa, Sephora, Brooks Brothers, Jose Bank, Casper, Brilliant Earth, and many, many more. I do and I will prides themselves on working with great companies, the premier companies in the industry to help you save money on your wedding, honeymoon, and more. Uh, They have a free app, I do and I will, and their goal is to help millennial couples who are facing financial hurdles of starting their lives together. Uh, We're going to be doing a live podcast with them. I think we have moved the date and or time, so we'll probably pause on on giving you specifics, but we're going to be doing a live podcast. And... um, We'll think of some fun, interactive way to get our young, nuptial-bound listeners uh, involved. But yeah, if you are if you are getting married, um, thinking about planning a wedding, whatever, as we mentioned last time, costs can add up very quickly. Any company that can help you save money, um, these guys work with some of the biggest companies out there, and and presumably, you know. Um, strength in numbers are able to negotiate some discounts for you so check them out um kind of a kind of a no-brainer to check out i do and i will so uh our thanks to them for sponsoring the podcast and the website over the next month or so that's fantastic let's get back to uh number one overall pick markel fultz Mm -hmm. who returned from injury slash not injury depending on who you believe uh he had a solid game 10 points eight rebounds or i'm sorry 10 points eight assists uh, it, it was a an interesting thing. He came in off the bench to be the uh, the backup point guard for Ben Simmons. And one of the things that I've been talking about for a while with him is I see no downside to playing him. 
Uh, and, and if nothing else, he gives you the potential of a very versatile weapon off the bench. I, I think even if he impresses down the stretch here, I don't see a scenario where he ends up in the starting five. I think he ends up anchoring that second, uh, the second rotation. Uh, it was funny. When he came into the game, they actually did a full line change, like we were watching a Flyers game, where he came in with, uh, I think at that point it was a, a mix of a couple starters. He came in with Embiid. And uh, it was just, it, it was really interesting to see the way that Philly kind of embraced him. I think that was maybe the, the nice, the nice uh, warm moment for everybody to experience. Yeah, it was a good moment. Uh, he got a nice ovation. Uh, Jeff, Investor Jeff, we were there. I was there as Investor Jeff. And Did Lawyer you puke Mike, on cheeseburgers again? Or? Call him? No, no, I felt good. Only had one beer. Uh, but the puking last time was because I was sick, just to be clear. It was not alcohol-related. Um, no, so we, I was there with uh, Investor Jeff and Lawyer Mike. And uh, Jeff was a little disappointed by the reaction. He thought it would have been better when he came in. I thought it was great. I mean, what else do you expect? A standing ovation uh, for a guy who's who's been out and, you know, not without its sort of criticisms. I thought it was a, it was a perfectly fine reaction. And as the night went on and as the Sixers just clobbered the Nuggets in the second half, the building got more energetic and the Fultz skull chants are just purely pure brilliance. I... I, f- I hope the folks of Minnesota and Minneapolis know that we now own them. We actually now possess in our holdings. If Philadelphia fan base as a collective had a holding uh, portfolio, we would actually own the state of Minnesota. We have purchased their skull chant. We didn't even purchase We took their skull chant, reformulated it in our liking, and sent it back to them and to the rest of the world, and we're going to do it again on the banner-raising night. So thank you for the skull chant. It's delightful. We like to use our own words. Um, I thought, I mean, I, I, so, I, yeah, I thought the, the atmosphere was great. Um, like, what? I don't know what else you could really say about yeah. faults. He Can wasn't. I- on the atmosphere really quick. So yeah. watching it on TV, it seemed electric. Uh, I love the fact that as soon as he came down the court the first time, the entire place erupted and he turned it over. And, and the then I went time down, and then and like shooting. it's funny it's funny because you can always you always feel with a Philadelphia crowd the hype be so real for something positive <laughs> and the second it goes negative, you kind of hear that murmuring like oh maybe this guy's not that good. And then the second time down it was kind of like half the crowd was like, "You know what? Let's let's give him another shot. Go ahead, Markel. You get it, young fella." get it and then he went down like he had a more successful possession um but when he came back in the game later on i i thought that the um the atmosphere seemed just as electric for him it felt like um you know the way that i I expected the national media to cover it at least ahead of time you know Stephen a smith's of the world yelling that philadelphia is not gonna like cut the kids some slack it definitely felt like the opposite of that it it felt like a city that knew that this kid's been through a lot i think a lot of people at this point believe and are cognizant of the fact that a lot of this was probably mental and you know the best way to get him ready is to support him and there's something nice i I don't know maybe it's because the eagles won the super bowl and villanova's in the final four and the sixers clinched a playoff spot without even playing and the flyers are close to going into the playoffs and the phillies are somewhat relevant again there's just this whole shift in the culture of philadelphia and i'm not so sure that if um the Sixers were fighting for that final playoff spot or if they were say two or three games back of the eighth seed. I don't know if the reaction would have been exactly the same. And I don't know if him turning over on the first possession or him missing a jump shot or two, how that would have gone over with the crowd. 
Um, and that's not to say anything about Markel. I think Markel's done a great job getting back. Um, it's just part of my view on Philadelphia fans in general. But it was great to see them be so supportive. And it was awesome to hear him, even in the post game, you know, talk about how much that meant to him. What a great moment that was. Yeah, I mean, people don't give us credit. We are we are great fans like that, and we get so little credit. Uh, and this is just preaching to the choir of people here. It's funny you mention the expecting him to fail, the the, mum, the muttering that goes around. I I know exactly what you're talking about. I think that's a good word for it. I can't tell you how many Phillies games I've been to where a player returned for injury or a new player, or, you know, something exciting. A guy comes up to bat, gets a standing O first at bat, strikes out. Then second at bat, the standing goes a little lower, you know, grounds out. Third, but goes winds up going 0 for 4 with a walk or something like that. So it's nice to see people actually, not actually, but it's nice to see people actually perform when there's, forget about it, uh, when there's some sort of expectation on them. And, uh, but, but we don't get enough credit for acknowledging the situation. And what people, I think the biggest misconception of Philly sports fans is that it's it's very much a parental it's a tough love relationship where it's like we love our teams and our players and we're hard on them like a parent would be on a kid that they expect expect a lot of but we're all ultimately the most supportive people and we can recognize those things let's be honest markel fultz at this point in the season if i would have told you when we drafted him that he would look like that in the paint and be hesitant to shoot last summer we'd be very disappointed like his his traje- if this is a line graph of his career trajectory he is still below where he should be at this point so but we recognize kind of what he went through whether it was mental or physical or some combination of both i suspect it was you know some combination of both we recognize what he went through and and seize on a moment to say okay this is not the time to beat the guy's head in and there was a couple of things you know questionable things on the court right specifically looked over at Brett Brown and you could tell he was holding back you know you have to have a sense for the 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 psyche of a player when you can go at them and stuff like that so we don't get enough credit for acknowledging those moments and I did but I did appreciate that his second or third trip down the court when he was wide open and people are going shoot you know the power play shoot um that's not going to help in the long run um as far as his game Go ahead. As far as his game, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that he looked great. Um, but most of the things that he seemed to struggle with are, are easily things that come from, you know, getting up back to the pace of play and a little bit of nerves. He had that early turnover. Um, you know, he seemed the first time out on the court a little more hesitant, not even hesitant, but a little, you know, like a little scattered those first few possessions, which is totally reasonable. Um, his shot, though, you know, I mean, he, he, they were clearly not, the, they were giving him the Ben Simmons treatment from the three point line outward. And, you know, that's not the reason they drafted him. As, as great as it was to see, um, keep in mind a lot of his, you know, exciting points came in the last five minutes of the game, up 15 plus points against the team that had clearly given up and an offense that was saying, here, Markel, you go play one on one. Let's see what you could do. Um, how that fits into the context of the Sixers overall. I don't know. Um, his, you know, you can't have two Ben Simmons on the court at once. It's great to have one guy who can get to the basket. Um, the difference to me between Fultz and Simmons is that guys can play off Simmons, but he's quick enough and big enough to either get past them or just muscle his way to the basket. 
Whereas with Fultz, as good as his moves are and as quick as he is, he needs the at least a threat of that shot to make that spin move effective. Because he did this, we saw this even in the summer league, but you know we're certainly seeing it now and we saw it early on. If guys can play six, seven feet off of him and he drives, his go-to move is the spin move almost every time. And when you're spinning on a guy who has that much space, he's able to get in front of you. And we saw that time and time again where he would spin or gain the, you know, gain the paint and basically just run right into the guy and then have to dish the ball off. Now, the plus side is, is his passing looks terrific and calm and smooth. And I'll say a lot of his assists weren't exactly like highlight real dimes, but there's something to be said for someone who can collapse the defense and just kick it out five feet. He had a nice little nonchalant pass to the corner three, so that's a huge plus. But he, you know, for him to be the player we want, he does have to at least he doesn't have to shoot forty percent from three this year. But it would be really nice if you know if he, he develops confidence in that mid range game that we saw. If he can extend that another five feet, because I think not only does that help him from a dynamic standpoint, but that makes his ability to drive, um, you know, I'd say exponentially better. So it'll be interesting to see how he does in a close game um, within the flow, normal flow of the offense, and also if he could play without the ball. The problem we saw early in the season was he really, you know, sort of struggled in that role and probably will for the rest of this season and into next season. Um, Off the bench, it's great when he's the main ball handler, but, you know, for us to get what we need out of him, He's going to have to be on the floor at Ben Simmons for for long stretches, and I don't, I suspect that's really not in the cards this year. That was one of those things. I think I think we talked about it last week, where we were talking about the end of game situation, and you know, eventually when they're able to play together, Ben and and Markel, that you know, Ben off the ball doesn't give you a whole lot outside of being a secondary ball handler, and and in the case of Fultz, um, one of the things that I think across the board uh, when you would watch the video clips that reporters were putting out throughout this uh, five-month stretch of him not playing was that he looked so much more comfortable and so much more fluid shooting off the ball which of course requires the ball to be in his hands whereas in the spot-up shooting situations that's where the shot looked so broken and it looked like they were rebuilding it so I agree with you the idea of him becoming this like knockdown shooter this year is not going to happen it's unrealistic to expect it now, if it's putting him in a position where he starts on the wing and he's able to take a couple of dribbles and shoot off the dribble, then that's where he looks the most fluid and that's where he'll find the most success. I wanted to go back to one of the other things that you were talking about. And, um, you know, I don't want this to be negative because no. it was it was, it was was a good moment. I feel and like by the some way, people... Oh, wait, to well, your last point before you move on, he doesn't... You're exactly right. All he needs to do is be able to shoot two to three threes per game and hit one or two of them. And if he does that, it's an, that is enough... To keep a defender say, okay, well, he might shoot, and he could, you know, just a normal guard level of defense. Not J.J. Redick from three, but, you know, not Ben Simmons. It's got to be somewhere in the middle because his spin move is so good, but it's it's essentially useless when a guy can play off you that much because well, that was it's, the, it's not that was, a crossover. You're not really going left and right. You're just sort of doing a minor pivot, and that doesn't work when a guy has that much space. That's that that's was, my only concern here because it, it hurts both elements of his of his game. One of the interesting the things that happened. Up, in, oh my god! Sorry, one of sorry. the interesting. That's okay. One of the interesting thing that that they. Um, I think it was Mark. Mark or Allah had mentioned on the telecast was it was as if Denver hadn't scouted Fultz at all, just in, just conceptually. Like obviously you weren't going into that game a few days ahead of time prepping for having to have uh, Markel Fultz as somebody to defend, but 
the way that defenders were playing off him as if he had this well-established three-point game was a little bit strange to see at first. They eventually did, you know, kind of close in on him. But um, one of the, the bigger issues that I think Wait, he's going to... I think I think I missed your point. I might have gone backwards on that. Okay. okay. So the the yeah. way that he was being defended initially was as if they were respecting him on the three, where Got they were closing in, you. and then they started sagging off. The same kind of way that you could theoretically sag off against Ben. The problem is, and you kind of brought this up, in the case of sagging off defensively on Ben because you're not afraid of him shooting, you know, beyond the free throw line, Ben is so quick, it takes him one step and he's halfway to the hoop. Uh, that's like one of the things that he has that differentiates him from most players in the league, not named like LeBron or Giannis. And he's it takes them and probably, you. yeah, it's like they take maybe two, three steps from half court and they're, and they're at the hoop, which is mm. insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to get back to something else with faults. So you're right about the spin move. The thing that I'm more concerned about, the spin move was the thing that we talked about in summer league as being an issue because he's so reliant on it. And defenders have, you know, this ability to know where he's going to go with it. And they know that he's likely going to do it. And then it becomes easy to defend it and to poke the ball at. My bigger concern is the lift on his shot and the fact that he was blocked so many times. And I I don't think it's like a lack of athleticism. Um, he was never thought of as an unathletic guy. Like James Harden doesn't necessarily have the athleticism that many wings in the league have, but Fultz had a, had at least that first jump shot blocked and a few times in the paint. I think it, part of that is just spatial awareness and being up to to the speed of the game and just not being able to adjust fully at that point uh, because of the five minute or the five month absence. So those are two things that I just kind of want to take a look at going forward: is that reliance on the spin move and is he able to create enough separation in his jump shot that he isn't risking getting blocked. Um, yeah, one and, of the- and the thing with getting when he is getting blocked in the paint, I mean that's a timing thing. Uh, you know, that's the sort of thing where um, he kept running in the plum. I don't know how many times Plumley blocked or changed his shot. It had to be at least four or five times. Um, you know, that your timing will come. His pump fake will come. I mean, this is you know a speed that he really hasn't played at essentially ever. I mean, I know he played four games earlier this year, so he'll get that down. I'm less I'm less worried about that. But yeah, I, I agree with you. It's I had said something about a spin move earlier in the season, maybe in the summer league. I was like, man, that's his only move. And people responded. Yeah, like, we, yeah, we, yeah, we covered that last summer and people got all over us. Like we were they're like, yeah, uh, it's a strength. Uh, people like going after me for being negative. But like that, that was a thing that we covered that we expressed concern about. And, you know, it, it's going to rear its ugly head. And, you know, as long as he plays at, at a decent level, it's not going to matter. But to your point, if he doesn't have a, a decent enough crossover, he's got the the hesitation dribbles that are very Harden-esque. You've got to see that in this past game. Um, he does have a set of moves. The problem is that he just, I think naturally, he just wants to go to that spin move every time he's in the paint. And defensively, you're going up against much bigger, stronger men than you ever did in college or obviously in high school. So some of those spin moves and some of the uh, elusiveness that you think you have doesn't really exist at that next level. That's something that you really have to hone your craft at. Getting back to one of the things that that you had said earlier, you mentioned having two guys that that are similar as of right now without Fultz having that that knockdown three point shot. Um, there, were, I was listening to WIP yesterday for some reason. Why? And I know. And I was I was listening to their midday show, and I have to thank Joe to camera because sorry, just. I, I had uh, the Fanatic on for a little bit, and I was taking the, the car in to, the, uh, to get inspected. So I was listening to the Fanatic for a little bit, 
and then I switch over to WIP on a commercial. And a guy brought this up, and this is why I, I'm really happy that people listen to this show. And I think I understand why they listen. And part of it is that they don't have to listen to stupid callers. And I think that's always been a big differentiating factor with us and obviously with most podcasts. But this guy called in and and pretty much said to the camera, well, don't you think the Sixers wasted two number one overall picks? Because neither guy can shoot. Ben Simmons doesn't look like he'll ever have a jump shot. Markel Fultz is a head case. And he certainly doesn't look like he's got a reliable jump shot. So now all you have are two point guards, neither of whom can shoot. Now, I was ready to like drive my car off the road. I was I was pretty irritated. DeCamera did a good job of diffusing that. And then DeCamera brought up that the NBA is getting very um, ambiguous in terms of positioning, right? It, we've talked about this a, a million times about positionless basketball and the way that the league is trending. Mm-hmm. And... The guy Almost said, like Jay Wright the, pioneered well, that sort of thing at Villanova. Stop. And so the um, the way that it got back and forth, somehow Cleveland came up, and the guy goes, well, how'd that work out for them? In, in reference to Kyrie and LeBron. And I screamed at the top of my lungs, and this is why I don't listen to sports radio anymore, because I get so angry. I'm like, they won a championship. They went to multiple finals. Wait, it wait, worked. Wait, wait. Well, right, I know, realize, I know, I know, realize, I know. Okay. I know. Okay. I'm just making sure you but realize. But in terms of no, have, I'm I'm making this argument from the standpoint. We're through the looking glass. I, yeah, I know. Sure. Okay. I know. Uh, but I'm looking at it from the the idea that like positionless basketball exists, and the big but the big differentiating factor between the way that LeBron played point forward and Kyrie ended up learning how to play off ball is Kyrie's always had a fantastic shot, and he's a threat from anywhere on the court with a with a jump shot, either spot up or off the dribble, but. The concept of positionless basketball is something that I still think that fans who haven't been watching the NBA for a while because they hated what Hinky did with the Sixers, I don't think people have gotten used to seeing the way that the league has evolved. And if the last exposure you had was, say, the last playoff team in 2012, when you had Evan Turner and Andre Iguodala jumping on the table after they beat a decrepit and, and injured Chicago Bulls team... Um, like I, I don't think you're ready for the kind of league that you're walking back into. And I think that's kind of there's some onus on a fan that if you walked away from the league and you walked away from the team for long enough, you can't now all of a sudden just come back and expect traditional basketball as you knew it to exist. It it really doesn't among the best teams in the league. Yeah. And like your favorite your favorite player, Kyle Lowry, he and DeMar DeRozan split point guard duties right because they can both play off ball they can both play on ball that's something that like in the past that hasn't been a thing iverson to some extent used to do that and i guess later in his career he also tried to get himself more involved as the primary ball handler he never really had a a decent second option that could have you know gone back and forth eric snow was you know your prototypical point guard but he wasn't much of a of a threat in any other capacity yeah i would say even more than the guard thing and even more than lowry and DeRozan. i mean you know, guards are guard, but I mean, the league has changed in ways where you now have forwards and, you know, Joel Embiid's the, the exception, but you now have got big guys that can shoot the three and take it to the basket. And, you know, you got gar- guys like Sharich who are just sort of like this amalgamation of an NBA player. It's kind of incredible, the, all the, the varied skill sets that he has. Even um, if you look at like Paul George, Jokic, LeBron, yeah, no Durant, they're, they're all, what, six, six, nine, six, ten plus. And they can handle like a guard. It's insane. Or they can they can beat you inside as a four or even a small ball five. 
and quite frankly, I mean, that's what makes Mikael Bridges in a, in a lottery pick. Not to always go back to the Nova thing, but like, you know, if you look at him as a big man and see the first few tournament games where he's getting caught up in traffic and out-muscled and has trouble getting a shot off, you're like, how is this guy an NBA prospect? And then you see him hit four threes in a row and you're like, oh, that's why he's that big and can do that and can handle the ball and has length and all that stuff. So, yeah, and I, I'm I'm less worried about the shooting on – I, I, let me let me rephrase that. I am worried about Fultz's ability to shoot, but I, that's not on the Sixers. That's at least when they drafted him. Who God knows what happened this season. But um, you know, when they drafted him, I mean, the reason he was the consensus number one pick was because he could drive and shoot and defend and play and theoretically play off the ball and all of these things. And again, he's only 19, so all that probably remains true. But I can't put the Fultz thing on the Sixers from a we-should-go-draft-this-guy standpoint because maybe the Celtics weren't high on him, but everybody else, uh, including Bill Simmons, a month before the draft, viewed him as by far and away the consensus number one pick. So, And, you know, Simmons, I think the shot will come. He's probably never going to be a knockdown shooter. But, again, the – a shot yeah, with the It doesn't even that, matter. I don't with even him. think He's that his evolution. So I don't even think the evolution of Ben Simmons involves him ever being a knockdown shooter. I agree with. If you. it's developing the jump shot off the dribble or bringing it up the court, and he learns how to hit that spot up top of the arc three, just as a way to you know hit that for let's say even thirty five percent for his career, that that takes him next level. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think there's an issue. There can be. It's not a. Fa- it's certainly not a failure in drafting, which is an absurd argument. But you know, we do need we do need Fultz to hit shots for him to work with Ben Simmons. That's, I think, probably, you know, the furthest we can go on that. Um, anything else Fultz related? Yeah. Uh, from the game, what? So I I just kind of want to circle back around to something that that has driven me nuts all season, and it's something that we've talked about a few times. It's come up in Slack a lot. Um, the hate for Brett Brown or the the questioning of his ability, um, his questioning in terms of his ability to lead the team to a winning season, his ability to shake off the 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 dark stains, I guess if you want to call them that, of the past, all the losing culture nonsense that he's he's kind of had strapped around him as if it were you know a ball and chain, and he's falling into a lake. Um, Brett Brown, beyond being a good coach. And leading this team, players have gone out of the way to say that he deserves a lot of credit. Joel went out of his way, I think, in the the Colin Coward fireback, uh, where he you know really heaped a, a ton of praise for Brett. But I think the the ultimate showing of how much Brett cares about his players came from that pregame press conference. Um, I think probably most people who are listening to this saw it, but if you didn't just go on Twitter and type in Brett Brown Fultz, it's like the first thing that pops up from ESPN. And it was, um, Brett in the pregame press conference saying that Markel Fultz will play tonight. And he paused and the entire media room just kind of seemed confused. You just kind of heard like a, a little bit of wait, is he serious? And they said, I get goosebumps telling you all of that. I'm so proud of him. And he went on to talk about Markel Fultz as if it was his son. And I, I think there's something really nice about that. It's something that you don't see a lot in sports. There are plenty of coaches in the NBA that if their guy got hit by a bus, I don't think they would blink twice. They would think about the next guy up. And Brett Brown is a guy, you know, in the past when they traded, it was when they traded Evan Turner. Um, he was one of the guys I think that was in the car with him. I know Hinky drove him to the airport, but I think Brown was like one of the last guys to send him off. 
Uh, he's a guy that checks in on his former players a ton. He's a good human being, and he's proven to be a good coach. And now that he has a competent bench, I think you're starting to see that the guy actually knows how to create later game rotations with his bench that utilizes the the team's strengths instead of putting them in poor positions. It's really hard to coach a team where you've got like TLC playing big minutes and Jared Bayless jacking up bricks, and you've got like some weird amalgamation of, uh, you used that word already, uh, Trevor Booker and let's say like Rashawn Holmes, who don't really play well together at all. It's a totally different thing when you finally have quality players like Ursan and Bellinelli coming in off the bench. And now with this added potential component of Markel Fultz if he plays anything like he did in this last game or he's able to improve on that even just the slightest bit you're looking at a guy who actually knows how to coach he's he's now being able to finally prove it and it's an argument that I got into with a, a few friends the other day uh they were they were saying like what if a what if a marquee coach comes onto the market like I think it was two years ago Frank Vogel came onto the market after he had a really successful run in Indiana and Orlando swooped him up, and a lot of people went at Brett Brown fired so that you could go out and get a known commodity. And my whole thing has been, I don't think you could even go into, like, if, if the Sixers were to lose out the rest of the year, right, and and really stagger their way, or um, drag their way into the playoffs and get swept in the first round or, like, lose in a five-game series in the first round, people would call for his head. And I would still make the argument, and maybe it's just me being naive, and maybe it's me having Stockholm Syndrome from being a process truster, but I don't think you can really evaluate Brett Brown until you've seen what this team looks like with Markel Fultz playing the the role that he's supposed to play in. And if that means that it's halfway through next year, and Fultz is your starting two guard, and he's showing that he has learned how to play off ball at least somewhat competently... And at that point, the team is massively underachieving, then maybe it's a conversation you have. But I don't think there's anything that he could do this year, even if we had reversed this, if we had gone back 10 games from now. Uh, I, I don't think there's any way that you could have parted ways with him in the offseason, and I yeah, certainly I don't see a way that you could do it now. Your point is well made. I, I don't think there's that many knowledgeable fans who are, who are seriously, seriously going against... Um, you know, Brown and really wanted him fired. I know that we see that on Twitter. I mean, there were moments where they would come out of timeouts and you'd be like, that's what you drew up for the last play. And there's certainly blown losses or blown leads. I mean, so it's not, you know, we don't know if he's the perfect coach yet for, for sure. But I think it's hard. It's hard for people to remember. He's been here for so long and he's, he's basically started from the bottom. Now he's here. Thanks. And uh, it's like, after a while, like he just becomes the constant in the losing, and and therefore he takes the brunt of this. I don't think there's any doubt that he's the genuine article as a person, as a coach. He clearly cares about these guys. I think when the losing is so great and he's waxing so poetic all the time that for me it would get a little bit not irksome, but just tiresome to kind of always hear him waxing poetic after a you know another twenty point drubbing. But when they're winning, that stuff sounds great, and I, I think he is the real deal. And you're right. Like, he still has not been working with a full deck, and he kind of still is not working with a full deck. And look at what he's done uh, with this group. And, you know, what people forget is that y- there's so many young guys on this team, and your key pieces are, are both essentially rookies. I mean, Embiid is, is something of a rookie plus, but he only played 31 games last year. I mean, this is his first full NBA season, which is kind of crazy. He's been here for a while. 
But young players in whether you're freshmen in college or first couple year players in the NBA or any sport, the hardest thing is closing out games, especially against veteran teams. You know, and, and in basketball certainly because you know you just you naturally let up your entire life. You have be, except for Embiid, who didn't start playing basketball until he's fifteen or sixteen. But your entire life, you've beaten the piss out of teams. You've been the best player in your grade school, and then in your high school, and then likely at your college, and have pretty much dominated along the way. And then you get to the NBA, and now you're up twenty in a game. And you're like, okay, well, this is what I did in AAU ball. I can coast and whatever. And the NBA is not a you know is not a forgiven league in that regard. And it takes time to build up those calluses and understand how to close games and perform in the clutch and have time in situation and all that. And turnovers are just inherent with young guys. And we blame so much of that on Brown. I do think there were fair critiques. There's a lot of times they would come out of a timeout. You'd be like, that. that is how you drew it up. Um, but there's other times where it's like, okay, hey, these guys blow a 10-point lead in the third quarter. That is, first of all, normal in the NBA, never mind the fact these guys are so young. So, yeah, I think you're you're kind of preaching to the choir on Brett Brown. I don't know if he's the right coach yet, but um, at this point, all signs are pointing to the Sixers ha- are being rewarded for sticking with him. And now, when if Fultz comes back and is the player we thought and they land a free agent, um, you'll get to see what he can really do. So I next agree. year is the year you judge him. Next year is the year you truly judge him, I think. And it'll be interesting because even if, if they lose out, let's say, on – one of the big two free agents between Paul George or uh, LeBron, you do have to kind of wonder, you know, I, I would assume they're going to ride it out. They'll probably bring back JJ for another season. I would assume at a, at a pretty high salary. 2019, you're coming back around to, uh, you know, the thing that we've kind of dreamt about, which is Clay Thompson hits the open market, assuming that he hasn't been traded and extended by his new team or, you know, it was extended by the Warriors via bird rights and then traded. A beautiful sign and trade. Um, Kawhi Leonard still is not back with San Antonio, and I'm still interested potentially in a reunion of Brett Brown and Kawhi Leonard. I just don't know what it'll cost, and I'm certainly not willing at this point to make too significant of a trade. Now, the interesting thing is, and I think we had talked about it before, um, Kawhi is like the one guy that I would make a massive deal for within reason if if you were going to tell me that we were going to get fully healthy Kawhi Leonard and that was going to cost me Sarich and Fultz and a pick I, I would make that trade um it, that's only if you can guarantee health but Kawhi Leonard when he's healthy is a top three or top five player in the league and your best projection I think for Fultz at this point is that he'll end up in a spot where he's like I think hope like most hopeful position here would be like he maybe cracks the top 25 at some point right because I think we could say that uh, I ben, would think his ceiling is way higher. You, you're not the number one pick if your ceiling is not substantially higher. Top 25 means that you are the best player on your team. No, it's even better than that because some teams are stacked. So it's, I mean, like if we made a, a top 25 list right now, he, he would obviously be nowhere close to that. And if you would look at how big the gap is just hypothetically between him and college and, and whatever that 25th player is, I don't think he's anywhere near that. Like, well, I think he's obviously a, he's a 19 year old rookies played five no, games. I, I know, but I'm, I'm near. saying in, in your best case scenario of what we've seen so far. So I think maybe we need to kind of set those parameters a little bit differently. I'm not saying when he was coming out of college that his best case scenario would have been top 25. I'm saying that based on the season that he's had, based on all the issues that have surrounded him, based on the fact that we haven't really seen him, uh, you know, completely correct that shooting form 
or prove over an extended period of time that he can be that player that we saw in college. I would say that right now, his ceiling is a top 25 player. Hopefully. I would say this. I would say this. I would say him becoming a top 25 player would be more than adequate for what's needed out of him on this team. And I don't think anyone would be upset with that outcome. I think that's probably a better way to put it. I would still say that his true ceiling is definitely that of a top 10 player in the league. Again, that doesn't mean likely when there's a snowstorm, <clears throat> those, all these weather people I follow, there's like the meteorologists behind the meteorologists, you know, the people who are feeding the news people, they put out their uh, best and worst case snowfall maps and they put their forecast, which is like the middle 80% or the middle 50%. Then they put their least guaranteed snow, which is like the 10% on the low end, like there's a 10% chance we get the low end. This is the absolute minimum we can get. And then they put out a 10% high end, which is like there's a 10% chance this is the most we can get, but it's a small. That's that lane for Fultz to become a top 10 player. It might only be a 10% chance. Yeah, I, still I, think, I think you a and I are saying reasonable saying the best same case thing. scenario for him. Yeah, I just think yeah, it's a little higher. I think seeing no, but how the, no, no, hold on, is, time out, time out. Whoa, whoa. I think we're saying the same thing. I think you're going with this, like, this idea that there's a 10% chance. Fine, like I'll give you the 10% chance. I'm just saying that I think the most likely scenario is that if he hits a ceiling at this point, it's probably 25, the top 25. There's, of course, always going to be the small percentage chance that he becomes a top 10 player in the league. Like, I, I think we're, I think we're just, we're okay. taught, we're making yeah. the same point. It's just a little bit different. Um, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how he progresses going forward. Team is really exciting and, you know, Hopefully, if he's able to to do anything like he did in this past game, his playmaking, the fact that he had eight assists, um, means that he was playing, putting his teammates in position to make makeable baskets, especially because you're considering that he was also rolling out there with a bunch of second unit guys and Embiid. Um, it, it'll be very just, interesting to see if that if that sticks around. I thought his assist number was a little inflated just just watching it. it I'm not trying to take away from him. I actually got to go. Don't end this on a negative note. But no, 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 I'm not. But he, there was a you know a couple of layups. But again, that's part of a function of him, not layups, like like wide open guys that he just sort of kicked it to in desperation. But that's also a function of everyone collapsing in the paint with him and bingo, and someone else being left. So yeah, I got to yep. run. I got a contract okay. here. Land it. All right. So um, this has been the Crossing Broadcast. It is a Wednesday. It was a great day. Uh, Mark Hill Fultz is back. Flyers lost in overtime last night. That's bad jake arietta got blown up in spring training not good but that's okay we are we're here we're alive crossing broadcast is great uh we will be making an announcement hopefully on the website soon about the rest of the crossing broad podcast network uh as we've talked about before there's a hockey show coming snow the goalie a baseball podcast coming crossed up uh soccer show crossing broad fc and of course kevin kincaid's it's always soccer in philadelphia Take a, a, a keep an eye on the website. They'll all be going live very shortly and going into iTunes. Uh, we will talk to you again on Friday.